Welcome to Writing the Rapids. I am your host, Joe Balecki, and this is the show where writers and I talk about writing. Very often the writers that are on the show have been recommended to me by other writers who have been on the show. For instance, this week we have Kevin Bryce Gonzalez, who was recommended to me by Zach Smith. So if you like this conversation and you haven't listened to the one with Zach, you'll probably like that one. Kevin Bryce Gonzalez currently resides in Florida. He is the former prose editor for Soft Cartel, founder of Back Patio Press, and fiction reviewer for Pigeonholes Literary Magazine. He was selected for inclusion in the Best Microfiction of 2018 anthology and was recently nominated for some other shit. He will be making more books, so keep your eyes peeled. We will be talking about his first book, I Could Be Your Neighbor, Isn't That Horrifying, as well as some other things as we normally do. Before we get into that, I will remind you that if you want to help me out, you can throw me a couple shekels over at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can get on the Patreon train over at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For two bucks a month, you'll get the episodes right after I'm done editing them rather than the last day of the month as well as any other essays, prose pieces, poems I feel like putting up there just for patrons. And at the $5 level, about a thousand words a week of my new serial story, Jellyfish Aches, will be put up. If you like Mobius, Mindless Self-Indulgence, Sizz, Pulp, Debauchery, you might enjoy Jellyfish Aches as well. But that's enough about me. Let's start our conversation. So it's been a couple days since I've read I Could Be Your Neighbor, Isn't That Horrifying? And the the thing that sticks in my head about it is that it feels angry, um, <laughs> which is like not a lot of the stories are, you know, kind of like dealing with anger overtly. But for some reason, the book feels very upset to me, like very angry. Yeah, Um I was really mad writing a lot of it. So most of this book was written like I don't sit down to write anymore. And that kind of started when I was producing pieces for this collection. Um, I just started immediately like annotating things in my phone. So mm. something would happen and it would piss me the fuck off. And I'd go on my phone and just kind of like rant about it. And I, I tried not to edit a whole lot because I wanted to maintain a really genuine tone of how i was feeling when transcribing it all um so yeah it is it, it is kind of hyper aggressive in a sense i guess like that because i was so dissatisfied with my life where it was when i was writing it right um i mean i just opened to just pull the trigger and the first line is i feel sick i feel like i'm going to die <laughs> yeah that um, um that was a hangover mm when I wrote that and I was sitting in my office and like the fluorescent lights were blinding me and mm, all of the uh, patients, I, I work in a clinic. So like all the patients were just alien almost and felt like every contact I had with a human being was slowly murdering me. And um, that's how that, that's how that piece came into being. Good. I also get like, <laughs> I get hardcore early Sam Pink vibes too. And that may just be the brevity, but there's, the way I, um, the sentences are structured and the repetition is very pinky, pinkian. <laughs> I um I went through a huge pink like burst right before I wrote this, so a lot of it is probably subconscious. But I read like six or seven of his books in a row because I had just discovered him, mm. and it was so mind blowing to come across all of this content. Specifically, um, 
I'm going to clone myself and then kill the clone and eat it. Like I read that book and I finished it and I thought to myself, okay, it's time to, it's time to finally put out like a collective body of work. It was the primary motivational text that like really got me into wanting to put something together. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the, the few pieces of his I haven't read. And that seems to be the one that inspires people the most. I feel like that's the most referenced, <laughs> at least on this podcast, of people who, who have mentioned his work. So. It's, um, it's really interesting as, as a book because I never really realized that flash fiction can have so many forms and formats. Specifically, there's one or two pieces in it that are formatted like screenplays. And that like completely blew my mind. And originally I included one of those in this book too, but Zach um, said it like he felt like it didn't fit super well. And then I was looking at it again. And I was like, this is just, this is just biting. I don't want to be a biter. So I just iced it, mm. but it was a good piece. I'd like to put it out eventually. Yeah. Uh, so let's pivot to, to back patio press. Cause you were doing soft cartel. Mm -hmm. Was there any overlap there? I think I, I became aware of you as you were finishing up Soft Cartel. Soft Cartel was most definitely like the largest inspiration in, in everything that I do. I started off submitting to them. And this was at a point where I started writing and submitting like two or three years ago. So I'm very fresh in the game still, I think, like in my mind. And I submitted a piece to Soft Cartel and they accepted it. But instead of sending this form letter back, dear Kevin Bryce Gonzalez, thank you for submitting this story. We really like this, this, and this. We would like to publish it on this date. The primary fiction editor, Toom, just hit me back and he's like, yo, man, this shit rules. It's going to go up like sometime next week. Thanks for sending it. Peace. And there was <laughs> no capital letters, like barely any punctuation. It was so laid back. And I immediately fell in love with it. And I felt like that was like the first time I ever found a place where there were people running a literary magazine that reflected who I genuinely was. Because before that I was submitting to these like higher end venues and putting on like a face and a character and trying to be so much more professional than I really am. And soft cartel completely like ripped that out of, out of what I was doing and took me out of there and made me feel real comfortable in like my own skin. So when soft cartel ended, it's rain and like that tomb stepped down and asked me to become the new fiction editor. That is what got me wanting to do something of my own because soft cartel wasn't mine. Mm. And then it did come to an end because the poetry editor base mountain felt like we had really strayed from our goal, like our initial goal as a venue. Um, so he wanted to close it down. I felt like it was ready to close down, but I wanted to keep providing something for people in the community to make them feel at home and like they had a fun place where they could just say whatever the fuck they wanted to without having to put on this professional face and walk on eggshells. So as soon as it ended, I was like starting something new. It's going to reflect like the exact same themes that we wanted in soft cartel laid back, casual, just have fun. And so back patio came into being, I think like a month or two after soft cartel was officially closed. Okay. And that was, was that, was Zach involved with that right at the beginning? Um, no, it was actually a real independent venture. I can't recall exactly where Zach started coming into the picture because we're so close. We talk every day, me, Zach, Mike, Giac, Jock, 
fuck, he's going to roast me now for pronouncing ah. his name wrong. <laughs> um, we talk like every single day. So everything I do in a literary sense, I'm constantly bouncing off of them. And then eventually Zach just became the, the managing editor. Um, I can't really place where he did, but it was probably like three or four months after we actually started. Okay. I gotcha. Huh. Yeah, it was real, real natural, real fluid. So what would you say for someone who hasn't read any back patio press type books? Like what can they expect to get? Our primary focus is, I don't want to say auto fiction because that's not necessarily true, even though a lot of the titles we are producing and have produced kind of exist in that um, slice of life kind of style with Venice and Numskull coming out this October and with Neighbor coming out. That's three out of like what four or five titles we have that are kind of focused on regular people and these almost like surreal strange elements that accompany them. But most of the titles are just, they're almost all debuts from authors because um, that's really what I wanted to do with Back Patio is help people get started. But yeah, that's it really. I don't really, I'm not good at marketing. <laughs> right, no, that's fine. Um, they're weird. <laughs> they're strange sure. and weird. I find I've I've tortured myself with this for a while. I love categorizing things for the sake of clarity. So like mm -hmm. I, I love, you know, uh new dark Soviet wave. Like I love you know, that that could be a genre that you put on music because it lets yeah. you know exactly what to expect because I always <laughs> say that like Elvis is rock the same way that Genesis is rock. Like they're both under that umbrella, but you know, Hound Dog and Firth of Fifths is not two songs that exist in the same universe even really. Mm -hmm. So I so desperately like want to come up with three or four type categorizations for what's happening in indie lit right now. Like if for nothing else, just for me to help place things in the same place. Because I was just, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was <laughs> I was just talking about this yesterday with um with uh, the boys and how to kind of accurately label what's going on right now <laughs> in indie lakes. We are existing in this kind of like post internet all lit wave where a lot of the inspiration is coming from people who existed in the alt lit genre, whether or not they wanted to find themselves as existing in the alt lit genre. Um, but nobody wants to touch labels or like definitions, mm -hmm. but it seems very obvious to most of us that it all exists in the same space. And there are primary voices that like motivated <laughs> most of the new writers that at least I know of. And most of my friends know of, if you track back everyone's inspirations, it always comes back to like these solid voices, Bud Smith, Sam Pink, Joey Grantham, to name a couple, like there's these structured kind of flow of inspiration that has led us to exactly where we are now and we do exist without a definition and without a label which i think is fine but like you were saying just for clarity i think it'd be nice for someone to come up with come up with something for us please so we know what to call ourselves right and just i mean even within that and maybe this is me this is this is probably my like submission anxiety being projected <laughs> onto everybody else but like so photographs of madness inside out on on the back patio press has a blurb from mike klein 
who mm-hmm. has stuff out on like inside the castle and Adolotl. And like granted he's a very um sort of unique writer, but like mm-hmm. AS Coomer has stuff out on Adolotl. Uh but like <laughs> you know shining the light and canley stewbreak are very very different books so it's like it's just hard for me to know where to even send things these days uh which is why i don't have any books published well probably yeah i was also talking about this with quote unquote the boys again (laughs) um where like you can find a press and go through their catalog and a lot of the times there's not an overarching theme it's just like whoever they felt like publishing and whatever they felt like publishing. So trying to figure out where to submit things is so difficult because there's not like a specific tone or voice that you can really nail down for them. And it's super hit or miss because you just don't know what they're looking for. You don't know if what you have is what they're looking for. And that is, that is like a big gripe I have kind of with the whole submission model of publishing books. Right. Yeah. And the, the beauty is that indie publishing is so decentralized, so it's really easy to find um, a place to go, right? Like, it's really easy yeah. to find a press. For for me, it's inside the castle. I'm just going to buy all their books at some point. I don't need to know who wrote it. I don't need <laughs> to know what it's called or what it's about. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to read it, and it's going to be good for me. Like, I know that that's it. But I also know that I really like Apocalypse Party. I really enjoyed your book, so I'm going to buy more back patio press stuff. <laughs> I really like Autolotl, and that's connected to Grindhouse Press. So I really like that. I've read books on Clash. You know, everybody who's been on the show, who's been published by indie presses, I like their work, which means I probably am going to like their press. But that means I need to be, like, buying and reading, like, 75 books a year if I want to even stay on top of everything which is mind-boggling because i also have other things to do with my time than just read books yeah i have a stack of like 20 fucking books that's just sitting on my table at all times because i do follow these presses and these writers and i want to read everything that's coming out but it's almost gotten to the point where it's like stressful because there's 17 people I know that are like waiting to hear my opinion on their book or like the need to review things and promote them because I want to support the artist. And it's, it's stressful, honestly, because I get home and from work working for eight and a half hours and I just want to fucking drink some tea and take a bubble bath. And then I look at my table and there's a tower three and a half feet tall of all these things I haven't gotten to yet and that I want to get to. It's kind of a self-defeating cycle where like you just order everything you want and then it gets so big and then you don't even want to look at it, like not opening your email for a week and a half and then you do open it and then you immediately close out because it's fucking scary looking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you find yourself at all interested in reading like the quote unquote classics, like the literary canon or anything like that too? When I was 18 years old and just got accepted (laughs) into a creative writing program, they really drilled into my head that emulating classic literature was the way to make it and that it was the only important voices that existed. So I did start going through the canon, but oh my God, dude, so boring. (laughs) So (laughs) fucking boring, man. Like, gonna only read so much Camus before I'm just like 
okay, so what's going to happen? Like, are you just going to describe the city for another hundred pages? Are you going to talk about this main character's inner thoughts on that rose bush he passed for another three paragraphs or what's going on? <laughs> I agree with you there as well. Um, I also like back in 2018 vulture.com had their hundred books of the premature attempt at a 21st century canon, and like I don't know, there's so many so many good books. The point I'm trying to get at is to expand upon your stress. Like for me, not only do I want to be up on what the indie people are doing too, but I also like never really read anything beyond high fantasy Dungeons and Dragons type lore books um, until I was midway through college so i feel like utterly behind uh from every direction so like yeah like i'm reading (laughs) i'm reading the norse myths again like i'm reading like a fourth different retelling and like reading the notes and stuff and it's like oh wait a minute so tear is similar to the slavic god and this babylonian god and this irish god so i should probably buy books on that and then all the while, like four books have come out from another press. <laughs> yeah, I don't like the studious nature of of classics because it feels like work. Like I used to, I'm looking at my bookcase right now, and I could see like all my spiral bound notebooks where I would sit down with nausea, and I'd sit down with you know Wuthering Heights or the Portrait of Dorian Gray, and I would annotate for like hours, like. I'd underline words and write definitions and Google things and try to understand the themes and all of these deep ever present notions that exist within the text and what the text meant for the cultural period of the time. And then I graduated from college and real life started and I was like, okay, so I'm done learning (laughs) for the most part. Like I don't want to fucking do this anymore. I already paid $35,000 for a degree and my time off, I'm not going to be spent hunched over a book trying to analyze literature like i still like learning now i'll learn about animals and like horticulture and stuff but i'm not gonna rip my brain out for four hours pondering over a 700 page book that was written 200 years ago sure i think part of it for me is that when i was really starting to develop an identity for the music i liked we were talking before the show about Milo, but in addition to that, rappers like Aesop Rock and Bus Driver, who were like incredibly dense and incredibly referential, but not to like other rap, but to like books and ideas. And, mm-hmm. things. and when I started writing music and then quit that because I was bad and <laughs> moved into writing prose and stuff, like that's a, a philosophy, a design philosophy that is like in my brain that like, I need to have something that is dense enough that people like it because of the density. Uh, And so I guess I can turn that around on you, but do you feel like as you're writing like a a self-consciousness or like self-imposed rules of like things that you feel like you need to do in your writing or with it? I definitely did when I first started. Um, Yesterday, I just kind of like gravitated towards a lot of my older work. So I was going through my neutral spaces page and I noticed that a lot of it was written in this like flowery prose almost. And it was much denser and more quote unquote artistic. And I wanted to like convey these larger ideas. Um, 
and now I don't really think about that anymore. I just kind of want to talk about whatever I feel like talking about. I really like keeping a casual voice. Um, but I would like to make a return to kind of trying to do more, I guess, with my work than just convey what it's like mm -hmm. to exist in this time period and what it's like to be 23 years old and working and in debt um, and kind of address more of the larger social factors at hand and more philosophical ideas. I'd like to do that. I don't feel a pressure to do that. And I don't know if I'll ever gravitate back. Um, I do know that like when I first started, um, I was writing like that and <laughs> I was getting like nominated for like awards all the time. And <laughs> like these very studious writers and editors would reach out to me and be like, Oh my God, dude, that was so deep. I can't believe you're only 20 years old and you wrote that. And it was really good for my ego. But now I just, I don't know. I don't have the patience for it. I don't sit down to write like I used to Every, everything I've made in the past year and a half. I think I've written on my phone. Um, so the effort, I just like, don't feel like exuding it to be honest with you. I think that's a thing that I found a lot with, uh, a lot of the people in this ecosystem is that the idea that work or that writing shouldn't feel at all like labor. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was one of the things yeah. that Sarah Gerard brought up on the last episode was that like, she thinks that writers should get paid salaries. <laughs> um i'm not laughing at you um i, I promise former guest. <laughs> well um, i mean it's a it's an incredibly radical idea but like can, yeah can you imagine like as a as a person who runs a press like no glycon being like i'll give you a book a year but you have to pay me 30 grand a year like that would be well and <laughs> it'd be a very interesting crazy. way to structure it I think like New Zealand has a very similar model of art production where a lot of their films are funded by the government, like for the purpose of existing as art because they believe human beings deserve an access to art, which I think is really neat and interesting. And they've made a lot of awesome movies because of this funding. But at the same time, I think as like a creator myself to think that, I deserve money for doing something that I have fun doing is crazy. That's why Back Patio is a nonprofit. Um, the only people who get paid are the people who make books. That's how we want it to be. We do like giving money to artists, but it's not like they're asking us for it. They don't show up at our door, like battering it down going, like, where are my royalties for the last three months, man? You promised me 25%. Where are they at? It's never happened. You know, like no one's, no one's publishing indie books. Okay, well, I can't say nobody, but a lot of people aren't publishing indie books to get paid. They're publishing indie books because it's something that's fun to do. They want to create something, and they feel an innate desire to create something, and so they do. And the natural process is to share that with people that you like. That's why I do it. That's why I know all of my friends do it. If you have ulterior motives to that, like making money, that's completely fine. You know, chase, chase that bag, stack paper all day. Um, but I think that's going to ultimately lead to unhappiness because it's 2020 and more people are going to slam on Netflix than open a book. And that's just where we're at. You know, writers can pay each other all day and recycle that $20 all day. But that's never been fulfilling to me and a lot of people that I know. Mm. I like that. I can see that. I, I understand like the, I mean, the late capitalism of it all is, is so depressing, but oh yeah it's 
I get that idea also. Like, I can see the idea of, like, well, we know we're not going to get rich on this. So let's mm-hmm. let's just have fun doing it and get it to the people who need to get it. You know, the people who need this writing should should be able to get it. That's exactly, I think, the primary goal for us as um, a literary institution back patio, I mean, is to get books made that maybe wouldn't otherwise have been made and then to put those books in the hands of the few people who will appreciate them versus making a ton of cash and, and buying a summer home. Like, that's just not, it's not, it's not fun. Could you imagine sitting down at like, you spend a year and a half writing this book and then for four months, you're Googling SEO keywords and buying advertisements and hustling and hustling and hustling, trying to, trying to get that 325 in royalty. I couldn't, <laughs> I'm, I just stress myself out imagining that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I feel the same way about the show where it's like, I want a lot of people to listen to it because I feel like it has value, but like mm-hmm. the effort behind that is just nutty to me. I constantly tell my wife who I mentioned to you designs websites. And before mm-hmm. that she did like content writing for websites and stuff like that. So she knows how to do SEO and I'm like, man, we should really do that. But like <laughs> when I have free time to spend with my wife, my desire is not like, Hey baby, let's go optimize my SEO for my podcast that makes $3 a month on Patreon. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking too. Like, as you said, that like, Hey baby, we both got a, uh, both got the eating enough. How about we pull up to the laptop and do some research on the best way to make $17 for the next year. Right. Like, Oh my God. Like Cobra Kai just got on Netflix, man. We got to watch that. Like, <laughs> I got to see old fat Billy Zabka drink himself to death. Like let's do that instead. Yeah, live your life, man. Don't trying to monetize every single aspect of your personality. I was talking about this with Kat. Can't pronounce her last name. Giordano, Giordano, DiGiorno. Italian, right? Yeah. Cat, it's not delivery. DiGiorno. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to her the other day and she brought this up and she was like, monetizing every aspect of your personality is so unhealthy and it's eventually going to lead you to dislike the good things about yourself. And I completely agree with that because before I was even a writer, I wanted to be a painter. I painted and drew. I had my own like studio my mom got for me in our house. And I was so obsessed with making art and painting. And then I was 16, 17. I started selling it. It started becoming a business. I was making money. I was feeling pressure to make things in order to make money. So I was chasing that artist dream, fucking 95. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint all day and make a living off my art. And it got to the point where when I finally moved out and went to college, I had like a complete mental breakdown regarding visual art and the pressures on me to create and produce and sell it that I eventually just trashed everything threw all my canvases out years of work notebooks paint hundreds of dollars of supplies trashed it and didn't think about painting or drawing for years i think like last year was was when i finally started doing it again because i liked it and all of that insecurity and anxiety stemmed from me trying to monetize part of my personality hmm that's that's so that's heavy Holy cow. Um, yeah. It reminds me <laughs> of uh, 
I bring up David Lynch on this show all the time because I'm a, a white man of a certain age. <laughs> like his, um, he's got that like memoir out. I forget what it's called right now, but it's like it's a memoir written or it's like a biography and then he has a section after every chapter where he writes basically the memoir version of that chapter of the biography it's a really cool format of mm -hmm. like writing the tale of someone's life but he consider constantly talks about the art life and how like every day he's going to make art and like that's what he's concerned about and that's probably why he's gone through like three or four wives because <laughs> like it's hard to it is hard to make money like that on the last episode we talked about cormac mccarthy where he like was not interested in getting paid to speak about his books and so he lived in a shed and ate cans of beans with his first wife for like the longest time until his books got sold um and like that's something that i can respect but i also like want my wife to eat something other than beans from a can so it's, I, I guess that's why I have two other jobs or two jobs. And then this is this, but like the, the desire for me to expand anything I make beyond like the writers who I enjoy talking to, um, has to do with like making just enough that I don't have to have another job. Like I don't want to be rich, but I would like to get 30 grand a year to write books mm -hmm. and talk to other writers simply so that I can do more of it because I enjoy doing it. So it is a weird kind of balance where like the prolific nature is behind um, sort of an ambient paywall, you know, where like if I <laughs> yeah. get more funding, then I will do more of this. Um, but I'm going to do as much of it that I can. I don't know. It's. Yeah, I understand that completely. And I guess maybe, um, I didn't realize that my opinion, my opinion was a little privileged in that sense. And that the only person I have to take care of is myself and my dog and dog food is like $20. Right. <laughs> and I eat white rice and broccoli for dinner, like every day. So my life isn't inherently expensive. Um, but at the same time, I do exist in kind of this gray area where I make enough to survive and like you said, it would be nice to be more comfortable because I think comfort is also a big part of what you're able to create. If you're stressed out and like anxious and worrying about tomorrow incessantly, you're not going to have a drive to, to create art or even to try to monetize it. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it, that might be a big reason why I'm so disinterested in that subject just generally is because there are so many more pressing things in day-to-day -day life that I have to worry about where art is an escape from that versus me wanting to tie it into my real life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> in my conversation with Zach, it was kind of the same sort of thing where I asked him, like, do you have a desire to be a full-time writer? And he was like, no, not really. Man, imagine that, like you wake up every day and the one escape that you have is suddenly a monkey on your back and you, and you have to do it. I couldn't, it would ruin it entirely. Yeah. Like if you're, not, if you're not having fun, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I think about that all the time, especially when I'm on Twitter, I see people complaining and fucking, oh, I don't want to write anymore. I'm so sick of, oh, my novel, dude. Oh, 
it's so hard. I hate this. I just think, what the fuck, man? Then delete the Word document and, you know, go fucking jog or something. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, it's the the most self-helpy type thing that I I think in my brain is um, something to the effect of like, uh, if our reality is perception, then change the way that you perceive the things that are uncomfortable to you. So like uh, when I was really, really depressed and drinking heavily and suicidal and stuff like that, hard days at work became very enjoyable because they became a way to like covertly self-harm you know like Mm -hmm. like working really hard at a job that you don't enjoy like that's better than cutting dude (laughs) because people congratulate you for it um and oh man i'm like blowing kisses right now (laughs) i I mean that was when i was your age so like four years ago like it wasn't Mm -hmm. a you know i'm i'm much better now but um that's good uh like so now i don't feel pressure to work hard at work because like the time i was working the hardest is when i was the most unhappiest and i was working hard because i was unhappy so now that i'm happy like i'll do the work that needs to get done so that i don't get in trouble and then you know congregate has lots of flash games i haven't played yet so there we go (laughs) i definitely resonate heavily with that concept which is actually a big motivational factor behind neighbor, I think was this split up of my personality where I would leave my house in my nice, you know, $40 Paisley button up shirt and my slacks and my leather shoes and my, my knee high socks and my big watch on. And I'd put my hair back and go into the office and fucking grind myself into dust every single day waiting for my boss to like pat me on the head and give me a treat um, and put on this completely different persona. And then as soon as I got home and closed my door and unbuttoned my shirt and took my belt off, it was this immediate jump into depravity and sadness and isolation and fucking drinking myself into unconsciousness every night. And then I'd wake up, put my work clothes on and go do it again and again and again and again for three entire years until I completely lost my fucking mind and had had to write it all down in a book. Right. Yeah, that divorce between the genuine unhappiness of your existence and the beating the shit out of yourself by being a good worker (laughs) is is definitely very prevalent, I think. And in a lot of us, and especially in that book and in my life specifically, that was a large motivational factor. Nice. It's probably why I talk about The Office so much in the book. Yeah. (laughs) There, there's there's a decent amount of that there's a lot of drinking in the book too yeah i've been um on and off sobriety for like a year and a half now um recently kind of fell back on the wagon but i'm coming off it following mm-hmm. a fucking stomach ulcer and <laughs> being diagnosed with gerd which was super tight holy cow um, yeah what is yeah that? it was from what I understand, um, your stomach is super fucking mad at you and it just shoots acid up into your esophagus. Holy and fuck. it's, yeah. So I think it, it resulted from the time period between 18 and 21, where a lot of the events in the book took place, where I was drinking so heavily that I would wake up every morning and just puke for like 45 minutes, just stomach bile, hot stomach bile pouring out of me and f- retching. 
and the physical act of retching and then the acidity of the bile coming up your esophagus eventually wears it down to the point where it's fucking broken and it hurts and you can't eat, you can't swallow. Even water felt like I was chugging magma. I was bedridden for like five days, still working, still working from home because <laughs> you got to eat. Right. But yeah, it was it was not fun. But definitely a lot of drinking. Drinking was kind of my escape from harder shit that I was really into when I was younger and first got into college. And then I turned 21 and I thought, well, I am not going to go to prison if I if I just get caught with a bottle of Jack Daniels in my car. So I'm going to drink Jameson and Jack Daniels every single night because I'm unhappy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, 28 Bush lights. <laughs> right. Oh, God, Bush, man. Fucking Bush, what, bro. What a horrible way to go. I was drinking Bud Light because I'm, I'm nice. a man. I am That's a, so classy, dog. I'm a white man. I remember there was a time I, I stumbled down to the gas station that was like a quarter mile away. Bought a, mm-hmm. a six pack of Krispy Kreme donuts and two tall boys. Stumbled <laughs> back up to my house, put on Akira. I think I even forgot to put on like subtitles or English dub and just <laughs> just drank myself. <laughs> Was that your typical gas station order? I'm real interested in what people get from the gas station. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't really hidden, heading down to the gas station too much. I think that was because I was also I was right across the street from a liquor store. Nice. So like drinking vodka was much easier than than going down to the gas station and getting beer. So I would do that. Um, I think I probably switched over to Bud Light for a little bit because I was like, man, drinking straight liquor every day is like not good for you. <laughs> so you just switch to beer. And then you're like, well, beer has more calories, even the light stuff. Like vodka is basically just water that's warm. Mm-hmm. So I'll just keep drinking that <laughs> until I drank like two liters of it in a in a day. And I was like, oh, wait, this is bad for me. I'm going to I'm going to not do this anymore. Yeah, that wake up is really strange to me because it became so normal where like I just assumed that when every human being wakes up in the morning, they feel like a decaying corpse. And that just became my new reality where in the morning you're hungover and you're vomiting and your body feels like it's disintegrating into a bunch of ashen flakes and you in three hours maybe you'll feel okay. <laughs> so like waking up and looking back on those moments of being completely in physical disarray and mental disarray all the time, I just think like, what the f- fuck <laughs> like what the fuck were you doing where every day i would get off work go to 7-eleven get a hot dog put cheese on it buy a 12 pack of bush or a 12 pack of miller and go home and drink it and eat the fucking hot dog and just explode like or implode i guess is more accurate sure. in my room <laughs> it's a strange life man i don't recommend yeah. it for anybody no I'm absolutely real- not i have found as well to bring this back to writing that um while under the influence of of alcohol, I cannot write. Could not write. Like <laughs> it was it was not, you know, Stephen King's like, oh yeah, basically like Cujo is just like eighty gallons of beer spilled onto a page. And I'm like uh-huh. and blow. Don't forget the right. blow. Oh God, so much that's the thing. I I I've never done cocaine, so like maybe it's that's tough. what I needed. Uh but uh you know, <laughs> oof. Like I couldn't, I've only smoked weed a couple of times and like, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't write on weed. Like I don't get creative. I just babble and like run around making strange noises. It's not a productive <laughs> experience. How anybody 
can tie um, like getting fucked up or a specific substance to their creativity, A, I think is counterproductive because then you start to rely on it. And B, you're not making shit that would be as good if you weren't fucked up, but you don't believe it because you have this reliance on getting fucked up to make good stuff. Like, again, when I was in college, I was, dude, I wanted to be fucked Bukowski so bad, dog. Like, I was, I was 18, and I'd, I'd go in my room, and I'd pour up some Jack Daniels, and I'd get real fucked up and start slurring, and I couldn't even see my keyboard. And I would write eight pages about, like, being sad <laughs> right. and sitting in my underwear at my desk and being a writer and like having that image and that tie to being drunk and creating things in that image. I think a lot of people have of like the stoic writer with the pipe and the, in the bottle of whiskey. Fuck that man. Like get over that. Stop doing that. <laughs> Best thing that ever happened to my creative work was to stop getting fucked up all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I've also found that, um, I remember reading an article on Vice that this person was like, I was really creative, but also depressed. And then I got on an SSRI and I couldn't make art quite so much. And that's like the exact opposite of my experience. I write so much more now that I have antidepressants. Like, mm-hmm. because I don't just like sit there and look at the five words I've typed and been like, man, this is terrible. I'm terrible. I'm awful. Yeah. I should never write. I'm a terrible person. And then going, you know, like in bed and watching Futurama for six hours, like the <laughs> the ability to see myself even moderately objectively has allowed me to do anything creative and like a long-term sort of thing. I think that objective perspective is so important when you're making anything that definitely has been like a big shift for me too, um, which I can also trace back kind of to getting onto antidepressants where I was finally looking at myself, not as a literary commodity or not as an artist, but just as a person having fun doing shit. And as soon as that happened, like I felt so much more free and happy with what I was making when I could just objectively look at something I made and be like, Hey, that's, Hey, that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, like it feels so good to to look at something you've made, be proud of it, and then not immediately worry about it. Like, mm-hmm. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm I'm happy that that's a thing that was made. Yeah, that's what I don't understand about the prevalence of imposter syndrome and and writers predominantly. Because okay, first of all, if you'd suffer from that, like. I'm really sorry. You should give yourself a massage and kiss yourself on the hand and do something nice for yourself. But I, I, I can't put myself in that mind space where I feel like a fraud because I'm not. Like, in my opinion, if you write things, you're a writer. Like, so fucking own it. You know what I mean? Like, as soon as I started just pretending like everything I made was pure fucking gold, it got so much easier to make and share and be happy with the stuff I was making versus looking at rough drafts and thinking to myself, Oh my God, like other people can do this better. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. Fuck that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, I don't do enough in public for people Mm -hmm. to be really critical of it. So I like, haven't faced any of that. Like the most criticism I've got on stuff I've published or put on neutral spaces Mm -hmm. or whatever has just been like, nobody's, liked the tweet or anything like that. <laughs> and so like i don't know like i would love to 
to get like one hater who just like hates you know the podcast or my writing and just be like why don't you like it and like try to have a productive conversation of just like continually asking questions like really trying to get into the headspace of someone who just hates me Uh even if it's irrational because there's got to be something good in there now i imagine if it's like thirty thousand people doing that then you know (laughs) i'd have to come up with a different tact but i I fantasize about having a nemesis or or a hater so much that it's borderline erotic. Like, <laughs> I almost make things now hoping someone will hate it so much that they'll anonymously email me and be like, fuck you, you fucking piece of shit. I hate everything. And I know they exist because, like, I'll see shit on Twitter that I know is obviously, like, aimed at me or aimed at one of my friends. And that feels good. I genuinely like, I really enjoy that a lot. I don't know if it's because I don't like myself or if I just think it's so fun to be disliked, but it really gets my fucking rocks off, dude. <laughs> it's good. I recommend it. Yeah, I, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, I desperately want to be liked, um, but mm-hmm. like, I just find it would be interesting to like and so that's like the most privileged thing i'll say all day is like man it it sure would be interesting to have someone on the internet not like me (laughs) but but i don't know like i i feel it i think it was giacomo who was talking about the lack of like book reviews and book reveal view culture a couple months ago Mm -hmm. and I do. I also see on Twitter. I mean, I was around two months ago when people were getting blacklisted left and right, and it was like all these people I didn't like have any relation to. So I was just like constantly trying to figure out what the heck was happening. But Dude. like, I would love for someone to just be like, "Hey, this book that came out on this indie press that everybody loves is actually just not very good, and here's why." <laughs> um. Yeah. So. Oh, dude, you fucking did it, brother. You finally hit the subject I was hoping you'd get to. All right, we're there. Finally, my, dude, my titties are so hard right now. <laughs> um, okay, so first and foremost, criticism. Yeah, what is going on with, like, nobody Nobody wants criticism? Like, Zach started his blog, which I think is so tight, where he just openly talks about everything he likes or doesn't like. And I feel like that's gotten some negative responses from creators where they don't want to face any form of criticism, which absolutely boggles my fucking mind because the the ego you've got to have to think like whatever you made has to be perfect and enjoyable by every single person that exists is insane. We're indie writers. The demographic we write for is so niche. There's bound to be something you do that's not going to sit awesome with, with everybody. For example, I don't like super flowery adjective dense prose i don't fuck with that if every word in your paragraph is four to six syllables i'm not going to enjoy reading it it makes my brain go ouchy i don't like it i don't want to think that much (laughs) and secondly let me collect myself real quick fuck a blacklist man absolutely fuck that i witnessing that happen almost completely nuked me out of like the scene. Like I was so quick to abort. I deleted my Twitter, so disinterested and angry. Like it was so gross to witness these people put themselves on a pedestal to the extent where they thought they had the right to take art away from someone else. 
which boggles my mind because they know for a fact that writing is probably one of the only things that they have that makes them happy and keeps them around. And it grounds us as artists. That's, you know, we lived kind of to create art. That's what we do. So to see a bunch of people just try to assassinate the creative lives of others. Oh, it made me so nauseous, man. Like just witnessing it. I hated it so much. And then I knew, of course, because when it was going down, there was so much shade like tossed at me from behind the scenes just for existing and like not openly hating people. Right. Like because I didn't go on Twitter and say, fuck this person, dude. They have an opinion that I don't agree with because I didn't do that. I knew I had just lost like 15 to 20% of of probably my readers just for not actively shitting on someone else. Right. And to that, I think, you know, fuck it. Like the people who are blacklisting everybody, A, we're never going to support those writers to begin with. So it's not like you're losing anything mm -hmm. in reality. You're not losing shit. And B, it doesn't really impact anything <laughs> right. like honest to god i don't think you know the one person who absolutely despises me for not i don't know loving uh, i don't want to get too political so i'm not going to say that the people who don't like me for whatever reason and want me blacklisted their hatred of me or dislike of me is not going to impact my life whatsoever on the creative scene so to that, it makes me wonder how much of it is performative mm. and how much of it is like an actual attempt to engage the demographic of creators and to have a conversation. Because genuinely, I don't believe a conversation or that change is the end goal for a lot of these people. And it really just seems like an opportunity for someone to sit on a chair and look down on everybody and say, you're bad and you don't deserve to be here. And that's what it feels like. And it's fucking gross. So thanks for bringing that up. So I can finally, you're welcome. Finally get off on that, bro. That was sick. Good. So <laughs> the thing, so with that, I'm going to get blocked by so many fucking people. That's <laughs> fine. The, mm -hmm. So it's going to be funny. Cause the, you know, someone's going to listen to this in five years after, you know, finding your book for the first time and typing in Kevin Gonzalez interview. <laughs> and they're going to find <laughs> this and they're going to be like, what the fuck are they talking about? But the, <laughs> The thing that I found strange was that um, of the people making the claims of like, this person sexually harassed other people, like one, I had to spend like three hours figuring out who was being accused of what. And then it was also just like... Um, and also these people who are kind of tangentially related to them are right-wingers too. And like, I didn't know who to be mad at for why. Like, I don't like people who sexually harass people and I will, you know, I will beat the shit out of any fascist who wants some. But like... Put them up, dog. I gotta... Not, I gotta not me. I mean, I'll join you. I'm not a fascist. <laughs> like, I gotta know... Like, it was so weird to me that they're like, we're not going to name names because it's not our place to name names but it's also our place to like blacklist and i'm like i just i didn't understand what was going on like i had i had no idea like we, we've talked about how decentralized everything is and i've mentioned it in a lot of places like there is no hub 
for indie writers to sort of congregate except for twitter but i have like 140 people who follow me on twitter and half of those people were back when i was tweeting about starcraft 2 tournaments who are in active accounts like i'm not up on anything so like i i was like starting to go through like anybody who followed me you know after i posted a comment or after i posted a podcast interview like I had to like go through the last six months of their Twitter account to feel safe following them back. Like it's so like, I don't want to be that anxious about, Uh, you know, interacting with people. Like for one, if you're a fascist, be a fascist. So I know not to interact with you. uh And, and two, like, um, you know, like I think it's totally fair that somebody who's sexually harassing somebody in private that like even their closest friends wouldn't know about that. Um, Back when Steve Roganbuck was outed for being a creep, um, this guy, Joseph, I forget his last name, who was, like, living with him and, like, considered him his best friend for years, was like, I had no idea. I had no clue. And it makes me feel sick that I was friends with this person and didn't know that, like, bad things were happening. Like, I feel like that should be a forgivable position to be in. And But it's not. While that was happening, I didn't feel like that was a forgivable position to be in. And I'm already, like, pretty anti-community, anti-friendship anyway. Like, I kind of feel, like, philosophically, like, friendship is an economical proposition that doesn't have a lot of wins to it anyway. Like, you know, so, like, I don't interact with an awful lot of people. And so it was, like, weird to me that, like, oh, man, what if the three people I have, like, a decent internet relationship with are, like, bad? (laughs) Or evil. You know, like, I don't know. Like, so... I suppose if you're going to start blacklisting people, like, really put it out there, you know, like, no vagary, like, you know, if you're not the person who's being harassed or whatever, like, maybe work with that person to make sure that they can heal their trauma and then see if that person or people want to out the person. Like, it's weird to me that somebody would use somebody else's trauma and victimhood to, you know go after people that they don't like it was dude thank you so much for articulating all of this way better than i could have i'm just like rubbing like golf clapping over here like (laughs) raising my arms up so like you'll notice i don't i don't mention any names or anything because i don't again like i spent like three days like several hours a day like (laughs) going through twitter accounts of people i didn't know trying to figure out exactly what was even happening like who is mad at whom and for why and i still don't have a good grasp on the situation which is why i'm being very you know vague about it but like you know i'm i consider myself a leftist a feminist an anarchist like i'm i'm very clear it's not hard for anybody who knows me to like know where i stand and like if i happen to be interacting with a crypto fascist or somebody who you know doesn't respect women very nicely like and i don't know that like as soon as i find that out i just i'm going to not be around that person anymore yeah it's pretty easy to do um the strange you the best way i can describe what this feels like is if you were in bed sleeping and then all of your neighbors showed up at your front door and broke into your house and woke you up and handed you like a baseball bat and then showed you someone standing in your front yard and they were like, yo, go, go beat that person up with that baseball bat. And you ask why? And they say, cause, cause we don't like them and they're bad. And you say, why are they bad? And they go, 
dude, just go fucking hit them with the baseball bat. Like we're all doing it. If you don't do that, you're, you're sitting next to him and we're going to beat the shit out of you with this baseball bat. That's genuinely what it feels like. It's like join our mob or you're fucked. And come on, man. Like, right. And it's, it's particularly frustrating when it's a cause that I agree with. Like, like I don't want Nazis in indie lit. I don't want them there. But like, you know, like if someone's a crypto Nazi, like offer me proof because I don't know. You know, again, I know like the only people in indie lit who I know have been on this show or will be on the show in the next (laughs) couple of months. Like you guys are the only people I know. You know, I like, I, you know, I like as as much as I love that HTML giant exists, I haven't read any of the new posts on there because I'm doing other things, you know, like (laughs) I really, really love the idea of indie lit, but I don't like, it's not the only thing I do. I've, I've watched more video essays on video game analysis than I have read literary criticism in the past six months. And I don't even play video games. Like, the art that I consume is very different uh, to the art that I produce. Like, I don't, I don't really listen to writing podcasts. I listen to movie podcasts and Dungeons and Dragons podcasts. So, like, I don't know. Like, I find that, you know, beyond being angry at people for not being angry in the way that I want them to be, I, <laughs> like... I feel eternally disconnected from this community or ecosystem or or whatever because I'm only attached to it in that I make things that look kind of close to what other people are making. But like the things I consume, I feel like are incredibly different. Yeah, I think that kind of arms distance nature is is the best way to be to not get like wrapped up in all of this terminally online drama nonsense um like this idea that because first of all people are going to say that running a press puts you in a position of power above other writers that's the stupidest fucking thing i've ever heard in my entire life like we sell between 30 and 50 books (laughs) i am literally just a guy who learned kind of how to use indesign and I help promote projects for other people. Like I'm not, I do not inherently have power above the writing community, which some people will argue, and that's fine. You can have that opinion. But the idea that because I run a press, like I have to babysit absolutely every single person I come into contact with is ridiculous. Like I'll get DMs from people and they're like, did you know that in 2018, this person you published on Soft Cartel went on Facebook and they said this? I'll go, no, why the fuck would I know that, dude? <laughs> like, right. You want me to spend my free time Googling like every single person? Like, and, and like you said, I hold all of the same views as most of the antagonists that I encounter, which is the most frustrating part because inherently you become the bad person for not adhering to whatever they believe the proper steps forward are and for not, I guess, caring as much as they do because – to be honest with you, I just don't really care that much. Like writing is fun and I like doing it and it is a hobby, but I have a real life with real problems. I have real political anxieties. I have real social anxieties. And when I wake up in the morning, all of that's going to weigh down on me. So when I get to the thing that I enjoy doing, why does that have to be an active variable? Mm -hmm. I feel like I deserve the right to say, no, 
I'm not dealing with that. I don't want to deal with it. If someone does something bad, come to me, let me know. I'll handle it. But until that happens, I'm not going to spend all of my free time scrolling on Twitter, investigating every single person that follows me. That's ridiculous, man. I have movies to watch and <laughs> right. and a dog to pet on the head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, we went like way off the rails, but like, <laughs> I can tell you needed to say that. So, you know, like... It's on my brain, bro. I'm... Oh no, my camera activated. Oh, that's bad. Okay, good. We're 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 back to <laughs> we're back to nothing. Um yeah, like I'm I'm in the position of like yes and with you. Like, yeah, like mm-hmm. I don't know. Like it's such it's such a weird balance and 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 barrier to hit because like if I felt like I was in a position of power, and I certainly don't. Um, and the fact that I have the podcast structured the way I do, where most of the people who come on are suggested to me by other people, sort of places the power in the hands of the people who have been on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, like I would want to use the power that I thought I had for good. Um, but like, I don't know like what power I have or even could have like in writing. Like I definitely mm-hmm. like, tell the radio hosts of the show I produce like about leftist things. And I'm like, Hey man, Howie Hawkins is pretty dope. Like vote green party this election. But like, you know, like I can, I can slowly insert ideas in the minds of people who have more power than me. Uh, but like, I don't know. Like it's a weird balance because yeah, I want to go after every Nazi too, but like, I also want to read a book. Mm-hmm. So and chill and enjoy things, you know. Yeah, and, and of course, I'm a white dude who has a, who owns a house and has a wife <laughs> and a dog. Like it's such like a whiny baby position for me to take. But like, yeah, I already feel like a pussy just for saying it. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I don't know where 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 the balance is or where the answer is in there. And I wish mm-hmm. that we could focus on trying to get to that like leftist unity is such a meme but like i would much rather debate with a maoist than i would a racial identarian you know like tell tell me how you know stalin wasn't as bad as they say and let me see if your logic is sound like that's the type of political debate i want to have you know that's so hot bro i love that yeah (laughs) I told my wife the other day, like the only, I'm not going to have any more political discussions with anybody to the right of Bernie Sanders. Like I'm done. (laughs) He's as right as I will go. And I consider him a centrist. So like come at me, but like, that's it. You know, anybody like in the blue square on the political compass, like I just, your voice sounds like static to me, you know, there you go. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting phenomenon too, is like outside of one or two people four or five years ago, I've never had a problem with anyone on the right. Like I inherently disagree with almost everything they believe in. And I think their ideology is fucking whack and I don't adhere to it, but I've never actually had one of them like reach out to me and be like, you're a fucking piece of shit, dude. I don't like you, but I get leftist all the time man that are just like not satisfied i guess with with me and how i handle things because 
it, it is untrue to say that like I don't have any form of power at all. That's untrue. I recognize that like my voice has an impact on the community and those around me. I get that. But to be like straight up, <laughs> you know, assaulted basically verbally by people that are like on your team is so disheartening. It, it really is like the Ouroboros. Like yeah. hopefully I pronounce that. That's what it feels like to me is I'm trying to be on a team with these people and they show up at my house with fucking torches and pickaxes for no, because I wasn't on Twitter for a day and I, I missed something that someone said. And then I had a conversation with them on the timeline and now like I'm a Nazi. Right. Okay. Like oh, sweet dude. Didn't, didn't mean to be a Nazi. Sorry. Right. I, another thing I, I scream at my wife about politics so much. It's so unfair to her. She's an angel, but like, I'd say stuff like this all the time. Like it's so much easier um, optically to like be a right winger and do right wing things because the general perception is already that you're kind of the bad guys. Right. So like having a Nazi insignia on your, on your battle jacket and like being polite at the store is like their propaganda and the propaganda for a leftist is like, hey, your boss actively doesn't care if you die on the job. <laughs> like, that's so, like, it's so aggressive, you know? Like, even yeah. if you're coming from a moral standpoint, which I believe people on the left are. Like, I totally believe that, like, solidarity and people working together with their neighbors and, like, a community garden is, like, absolutely the moral right thing to do. But, like... Um, coming out of like the weird like 2000s purity culture like we've we've let so much of that latch onto us like autumn christian talks about that on twitter a decent amount and i don't know if i necessarily agree with like all of her positions but like the idea that we have allowed this purity culture to like go from like abstinence and sexuality into like political ideologies i think very harmful to the cause of people who want you know, black people not to be murdered by police in the street every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is um, like borderline religious almost in the indoctrination and in in the way that people expect you to behave uh, and follow like these very strict guidelines and hit these beats all at the same time. Like if you don't say this and then tomorrow you don't say this and you don't say this, then you're wrong and you're a bad person and you're not being supportive and fuck you. And I get that to the sense where like you have to speak up and voice what your opinions are. And we do that. I do that all the time. And I understand that, but the, the aggressive nature of like demanding that from someone demanding that from someone who inherently isn't involved is so strange to me. Like I go on Twitter to write and like share art and help artists and promote books. I don't go on Twitter to strangle crypto fascists. And I will, you know, I don't mind. I'm fucking, I'm so down for a good one too. I love getting my ass beat, but it's not my, it's not my desire. It's not my goal. It tires me out and I already have to do it every single fucking day. Like I wake up and I go out in the world and I work on a college campus. So like I have to get up and go to that college campus and just start fucking sucker punching people who aren't wearing masks. Cause yeah. that's what I got to do. You know, like that's what I believe in. And then they expect me to come on Twitter and like rant five tweet threads about fucking people aren't wearing masks and they're murdering us and they don't 
And it's just like, come on, man, fuck. <laughs> I do this every day in real life. <laughs> Let me escape from that for a moment, please. Oh, man. My <sighs> dog is going nuts downstairs. They must. Be I can't moving. hear him. Oh, that's good. They must be moving yeah. everything out of that house next door. Dude, oh, that's, that's sweet. so weird. I don't know. I hope our new... I hope if... I'm not actually sure what the situation in that house. I think it's like a multi-family unit, and I think it's like multiple families or like a big extended family. I don't mm-hmm. know. And I saw like a lot of medical equipment being moved out of there before we started. It's a it's a crazy thing. I'm so distracted by it. Oh my so god. So do you do you not um do you not like bring cookies to your neighbors when you move in somewhere? I, Are you someone who interacts with your neighbors? Um, so like I'm a bad leftist because I don't know my community at all. Um, uh-huh. I. So I've had I've had only good interactions with all of my neighbors um but there's only like one neighbor who's no two neighbors whose names I know so there's that like you know mm-hmm. there's there's people with uh across the street from me who have some dogs that are outside and their dogs bark at my dog so we wave at each other and smile and are like <laughs> yeah we can't control our dogs you know like <laughs> <laughs> At least we understand that we're both in the same boat here. And like some food was delivered to the neighbors who are moving out, but it got delivered to our house. So I had to like make sure because the address that was written, like wasn't an address that existed. It was a whole weird thing, but I got them their food. Um, but no, like I, we don't bake cookies and bring it to our, our neighbors or anything like that. No. Dude, yeah, no, I, um, Right before I wrote Neighbor, I actually talk about him. He's in the, the beta fish story. So I live in like a college town. And to my left, I had a bunch of frat kids. And I just like genuinely despise them because I just don't like most people. And I'm unhappy and angry all the time. So like as soon as I saw them hanging out in their driveway, looking at their Camaros and, and their fucking tank tops and little tiny maroon shorts, I was like, fuck these people, man. And so I wrote, I wrote that whole story about the beta fish and how I wanted to fucking murder this guy and I hated him and I never really talked to him. And I did in the book or the, the main character, the speaker, ended mm-hmm. up did murdering him. And about a month or two after it was published, that neighbor walked over into my backyard in his underwear and a tank top and he had a bowl of weed in his hands. And he goes, hey man, would you smoke this bowl with me? Like my roommate's gone and I'm feeling kind of lonely and I just want to come over and like, hang out. You know, I see you come home and leave and we've never really talked before. So I sat down and I talked to them for about 45 minutes. And when he left, I just started cackling to myself in my house. And I was like, I am a fucking monster, (laughs) dude. I am an evil person who made so many assumptions about this kid. And he was so nice and sweet. And I straight up murdered him in a work of fiction. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wrote about him being blended into a pile of mush and he was one of the nicest people I've ever left. And then he moved like a week later and I never saw him again. Oh man. It makes me so sad. But what, my other neighbors. What a show of positive man- masculinity that this dude just walked up to another man and was like, I feel lonely. Do you want to smoke weed with me? That's it amazing. Yeah. And his underwear nonetheless. Wow. I was like, it, dude, it blew my mind. Like immediately it's like, we're brothers now. Like, <laughs> You've seen inside of my heart, and I've seen inside of yours. <laughs> that is amazing. It was good. And the other neighbor I know, uh, Kevin, I only know him because I sold him stuff <laughs> a few times. <laughs> I sold him cookies. Girl is that Scout not cookies. legal in Florida? Uh, we just got medical, but he Holy definitely cow. doesn't 
even have his medical card. And yeah, it's not even a state thing. Like Orlando specifically has um, medical, and I think maybe a few other counties and cities do. Okay. Um, but no, it's certainly not. Um, also, something I don't really fuck around with often is smoking anymore or drinking. Like, gave up drinking. And t- I have no vices anymore, dude. And it sucks ass. I mean, it doesn't, but it does, you know, that back and forth mentally. Yeah. I. It's weird for me being, what is it, like two-ish, two and a half years sober now at this point that like Damn. I will smell beer and be like, oh man, that smells so good. And then like I imagine beer in my mouth and my entire body <laughs> like shudders, like completely revolts. That just happened to me, like <laughs> as yeah, you man. were discussing. Um, so I, I, when the pandemic happened and, and the, our governor said, everybody's got to stay home because it's a radio station where like essential to work in there. Like I even got like a card from FEMA that was like, yeah, if it gets bad enough that you have to start showing credentials to, you know, armed people, just show them this card. And then obviously never came to that. Um, mm-hmm. but I ended up working from home for a while because our management literally doesn't care if we live or die. Uh, and I, I, I do care if I live or die. So I decided to, to live. But when I came back, we had gotten a bunch of hand sanitizer from a local distillery that we have a good, uh, relationship with. And so there's like two types of hand sanitizer. There's the spray kind and the kind that you just like pump into your hand, but the kind you mm-hmm. pump into your hand smells like tequila because <sighs> you can make hand sanitizer from whatever byproducts of making alcohol that you do. So we had like this tequila scented hand sanitizer and then the spray was must have been from the byproduct of hard apple cider. Mm-hmm. So like you spray it around my little production booth and it just smells like rotting apples. And oh my god, man, you get the shakes. It's nutty. Yeah. yeah, that happened to me at work or not at work at the store the other day where like I pumped hand sanitizer into my hand. And as soon as the smell hit me, like my, like I looked like a fucking shark in the water that just smelled blood. I was like, Whoa, is that booze? <laughs> is that alcohol? And that's kind of the shitty thing about alcohol too, is it's so inescapable. I had, um, I, a big motivation for me in like getting sober is like at some point, I was doing some other shit that I shouldn't have been doing. And I was drinking on top of that. And one of my closest friends and my roommates like looked over to me when it was his birthday and I completely ruined his fucking birthday, blacked out, fucking trying to fight people in the bar, breaking shit, like just fucking wiling out, completely losing it. Mm. And I had sobered up finally on the way home and he looked over at me and he was like, one day I'm going to have to tell your mom that you're fucking dead and I will never forgive you if that happens. Like you need to get your act together. And two years prior to this or two or three years prior to this happening, there was a father figure of sorts in our life that was like super close to us. And he had a drinking problem and I watched him lose everything from his family to his million dollar house, to his job until eventually his life and having to being 16, 17 years old and like babying an adult man and, cleaning up 200 beer cans that he had consumed in 17 hours and throwing it away. And when my friend said that to me and I thought about all of these moments and that person that I had lost before it, it really clicked in my head. And there was like this epiphany moment where I thought to myself, I can't keep doing this anymore or I'm going to die. And (laughs) that was 
a year and a half, two years ago, and I've probably fallen off the wagon like three or four times since then because it just is so inescapable. Like something bad happens and you're in the gas station and you see that case of beer or you pass a liquor store and you know there's that bottle of Jameson in there and it's $20 and it's so easy to go in and get and fucking ruin yourself. It's it's hard. It's hard It's hard to escape from that. Yeah. And I know like the same friend who made that comment to me is probably going to listen to this and be like, dude, you're so fucking dramatic. <laughs> You were oh, just man. drinking a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So, again, having a wife, I recommend it. Like, <laughs> this is the most anti-boomer thing I can say. It's like, I really recommend mm-hmm. getting married. Like, you know, if you're not into Dude, women, I maybe don't, don't marry a woman. But, like, you know, marry somebody. Like, having having her there, because she at no point told me to stop. Um, It was mm-hmm. clear she was for it. And she's had, like four or five drinks in her life ever mm-hmm. like combined and she's you know she's not like a straight edge or anything like that it's just like not interested yeah and like the ability to look at her or think about her whenever i like felt like buying some booze was really really powerful because like i told her i'm done so you can't like the accountability is there, you know, like having yeah. somebody to tell like, yeah, dude, it's done. I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. And then like having that person, whoever they are, um, to think about whenever you're tempted, it's like, it, it's fail safe, you know, unless the addiction's really, really bad. Like I never lost a job or anything. Like I drove away pretty much every friend I've had since high school. Like I deleted my Facebook and nobody noticed sort of thing. Yeah. But like, uh, you know, get married if you can. I really recommend it. Man, that's like, fuck, <laughs> fuck. Here I go. <laughs> um, so I have been so uninterested in like romance my entire life. Growing up, like I had my three or four best friends, and that was it. I didn't, I didn't have an interest romantically. And then two years ago, I met this girl, and about a year and a half after we knew each other, like there was this one night I had where I went to downtown Miami with two of my friends and I got so fucked up that I couldn't walk. And we were driving these electric scooters around, which we shouldn't have been doing because I was fucking blacked out. I have no memory of this. And I drove that scooter straight into um, (laughs) a mini Cooper dealership window (laughs) So I hit the window, bounced off, landed in the street, fucked my face up. My face was lacerated. Mm. I kept trying to like get home more or less. Like in my blacked out state, I was trying to take the scooter and get back to our base camp. And in doing that, injured myself so many times. The one memory I have from all of this is just like bleeding everywhere. Like my hands were ripped open, fucking gashes all over me, gravel stuck in my ass. And the one memory I have is of my friend, the same one who like gave me that pep talk in the car, literally rubbing gravel out of my ass with oh, soap in the shower because I was so fucked up. And I woke up in the morning and my face was destroyed. My hands were destroyed. There was blood all over my clothes. I was, and I was just incessant in so much pain. And I remember like looking down at myself and realizing how low like I was. And the first thing I thought of was like that girl 
immediately. And like, that was the day I realized like I was in love with this girl. I wanted to get my life together. I was going to get off everything. I was going to quit fucking on random Tinder girls. I was going to get my life together, quit drinking, quit doing everything else that I was doing that was destroying me and like really pursue a relationship. And I did. And it was so good for me. Like I'd never been so happy and healthy in my entire life. And for, for months, dude, like I was on cloud fucking nine, but then I started drinking again casually and it eventually snowballed to the point where like I completely tanked that relationship. This mic I'm talking on right, right now was, was a present from her post breakup. Cause like she's so supportive and awesome, but I fucking ruined that relationship. And as soon as she like disappeared completely is when I like just recently, probably a couple months ago, like snapped completely like just went on my phone got everything i can get my fucking hands on and i was alone for like five weeks in my room because the pandemic just hit i was drinking i was doing this doing that doing that doing this doing that things i can't mention on the internet because my mom might listen oh boy <laughs> and um or my boss god forbid um and like fucking oh man being back down there it was so easy to get to when when you're alone like i felt like nobody needed me nobody wanted me my friends were gone starting their own lives getting married having kids my fucking girl left me and i fucked that up like it was all my fault and i looked at all these relationships and shit that i had ruined and it was all my fault like at the heart of it and that's what really fucked me up and drove me to do all of these things and then probably a week ago she contacted me out of nowhere and was like, Hey, like, I need to know that you're okay because I have a bad feeling that that something's gone wrong. And f I was so spiteful and like angry with her because I felt so abandoned and like left alone and like left to my own devices. Like I had been shown the light and watched it just get ripped out of my fucking hands. Even though it's all my fault, I still felt resentful. So I, I just like completely popped off, dude, for like four or five paragraphs of Oof. everything that was going through my mind. And she didn't text back for probably a day and a half. And she did. And it was a real simple, like, this is not you. This is bad. Basically, like you need to get your shit together. And even just that singular conversation, like since that happened, complete fucking light switch, complete fucking see the light like what am i doing man like i looked around my room after reading that and i saw all this evidence of my immediate self-destruction i felt so shameful and guilty and stupid because i had really believed that all these negative things that were inside my head were true and they weren't and having someone prove that to you like you were saying with your wife is one of the most powerful things i think anyone can have so i guess the whole point of this is if anyone's listening and you're in that self-destructive cycle, try to find any form of human connection because it uh, it really helps. It can really save your fucking life, I guess. I didn't mean to get so sad. Sorry. <laughs> Damn, that was a long diatribe, dude. <laughs> Based on the conversation we had, this would probably be a good, a good one to read. The whole book kind of leads up to this because um, the book does talk a lot about like mental health and intrusive thoughts and various struggles and whatnot. And this is kind of like the contemplative conclusion, I guess, to all the themes addressed in it. Uh, it's titled When, Where, How. It is a direct reference to um, 
to you know the inevitability of death. So I'll just hop right in there. Ever since I realized that I was afraid of death, despite my intrusive thoughts, I've been wondering how I'm going to die. Top of the list is cancer, but what kind? Two decades of pizza rolls and gas station hot dogs have probably taken a toll on my stomach. That's a good bet. But melanoma, <laughs> damn, I just got GERD. That is a good bet. <laughs> but melanoma runs rampant in my family. Hmm. And my liver, my golly, is that poor thing is withered as a salted slug. Cancer. Yeah, it'll probably be cancer. Car accident seems plausible too. I'm a terrible driver. I can't drive for shit. I can see this image very clearly. Shrapnel in my gut. And I'm making this pissed off face like, you merge into my lane, you ass. And the frat kid who is killing me will get out of his Camaro like, bro, what the fuck? And then he'll see me crawling out of my mutilated vehicle, bleeding. And he'll say, oh shit, or something like that. Just bleeding out in the road, shrapnel in my gut. Yeah, that sounds about right. I probably won't die in a plane crash. I don't travel. I go to and from work. That's all. It would suck, though, plummeting. I bet you wanderlust folk never think of that, but I do. Poison? Unlikely, unless it's an overdose of some sort. But I don't really do drugs, not anymore, so that would be a weird way to go. Yes, it uh, seems your son died from mixing stimulants and depressants several years ago. It's a latent response. Sometimes these things catch up. I'm sorry, ma'am. Oh, man, my poor mom. That would suck. No, I won't let that happen. Not ever. But still, oh boy. Oh, geez. <laughs> Death is coming. It sure is. I imagine that the act of dying will be like that time I did DMT, chock full of colorful prisms and morphing geometry, except on the other end of the tunnel, there won't be a David Bowie laser show to look forward to. There will be nothing, absolutely nothing, which doesn't sound so bad now that I think about it.